Welcome to today's edition of Daytime Dialogues. I have the great privilege and the honor to welcome today a very dear and close friend, Rabbi Yechiel Pupko. Rabbi Pupko, many of us in Chicago know very, very well because he's so much a part of our community and he serves in such a critical role as the rabbinic scholar of the Jewish Federation of Metropolitan Chicago. In that role, not only does he help educate the Jewish lay leadership about core Jewish values, but he also is responsible for the community's interfaith relations with local, national, and international Protestants, evangelicals, and Catholic seminaries, churches, and on and on. And Rabbi Popko is also an author. He writes a regular article for the JUF paper, but also he wrote a safer called Chana Life and Prayer, the first full-length treatment of Chana in the Bible and its reception in both Chazal, rabbinic literature and liturgy, and most recently, and really fascinating, he also wrote a book of poetry, which is called What is Lost? It's, both are available, by the way, on Amazon. I've read both of them, and they're just wonderful works and something you don't always expect from your typical Orthodox rabbi, but Rabbi Pupko is anything but the typical Orthodox rabbi. He brings a wealth of experiences. So thank you, Rabbi Pupko, for joining me today. It's great to be here. So Rabbi, I'm going to go back a little bit before we get to the present day. I want to go back because I know some of your history. As a young boy, you learned in Tel's Yeshiva in Cleveland. You were a Talmud of Rav Soloveitchik at Yeshiva University. Your family is a very, very prominent rabbinic family. Your father was a Rav for many, many years in Pittsburgh. Your grandfather was a Rav. Your great-grandfather, you come from a great Hasidic dynasty. And you also knew the great rabbinic leadership of the 20th century, of Moshe, Rav Aaron Kotler, and others. Growing up in that kind of environment, what was it like? You know, we don't have that nowadays. You were fully steeped in turning one way or the other, and there's one goggle or the next right next to you. So I have some uh, very vivid memories. I remember um, on the Friday before my bar mitzvah, which took place in 1959, that sitting at the dining room table uh, in our home in Pittsburgh was the Telzer and my uncle, who was married to my father's twin sister. And uh, they and uh, my mother served a babkin, uh, not one of these commercial babkins, uh, but an authentic East European Jewish babkin. And the two of them got into a major dispute as to what bloche you make on a babkin. It is a very serious question as to whether a babke is mizonot, you know, cake with sugar and eggs and the like, or given the sheer amount of flour and the small amount of other ingredients, I forget exactly which, does it have a DNA status of lechem of bread? And um, Rabbi Savitsky was a world-renowned bookie, and he marshaled a series of mikorot, what he would have called mikeres, uh, that thoroughly exasperated Rebot uh, Gifter. Um, and in the end, uh, my grandmother, who was a very learned woman, uh, 
uh, looked at the two of them and said, you know, if we listened to you, we would never eat. Uh, she went and brought a roll, put it on the table, said, wash, make a moitzi, and we'll eat the babka. And <laughs> neither one of them tried to defy her. No, I, I remember stories. Rabbi Schwartz Zetzal used to tell stories about his mother-in-law, your grandmother, that her knowledge of Yoridea was exceptional, that even at yeshiva, at YU, she would really check the boy's, the boy's knowledge in Yoridea. Absolutely. When I was learning Yoridea, uh, my Bubba showed me how to be boidik deyunis on a how to examine for kashrut, uh, that there be no lesions, the five lobes of, uh, of the lung of a steer. Where did she learn? Now, my grandmother was one of four daughters of Rabbi Yaakov Moshe Sapir, uh, who in 1918 in the Russian Civil War uh, in Saratov, after his library was put out in the street and burned, made Aliyah and became Vavarashi of Petach Tikva. He had four daughters. Uh, one daughter uh, married Reb Avram Trupp, the Rosh Hashiva in Raden. One daughter married my grandfather, Reb Eliezer Pufko. One daughter married Reb Yosef Siegel, uh, who was the first Israel. That in itself is an interesting daughter married the Chofetz Chaim's nephew, Reb Yeshua Levinson. And she and her husband and five children uh, were murdered uh, in July of 41 by the Germans and the Lithuanians. Actually, just a few months ago, a nephew found an archive in which we have the only extant picture of them. But all of these four daughters were taught by their father, Rabbi Yaakov Moshe Sapir, and they grew up uh, like an elite group of uh, Litvaka women uh, who could hold their own in a block gemore. And if I remember, the Chofetz Chaim was also married to a Pupko, or some somehow the Pupko and the Chofetz Chaim were connected? His maiden name was Pupko. I'm sorry. You, you, so froze, you froze for a moment. Whose maiden name was Pupko? The Chofetz Chaim's mother's maiden name was Pupko. And his father's name was Kagan because he was a Kayan. And when you crossed from uh, Poland into Russia, all the H's, Cohen become G's because Cyrillic has no, has no H. So Cohen becomes Kagan. But he was orphaned at an early age. So he kept his mother's surname as did his uh, children. And uh, uh, the entire family comes from Lide, uh, a very famous town uh, where the family actually had a monopoly on the beer uh, manufacturing. Uh, and in the summer of uh, 41, about 800 uh, members of our family, all named Pupko, were murdered by the Germans and the Lithuanians. And, I, I, uh, and the Chofetz Chaim's uh, mother was a uh, cousin uh, to my grandfather's uh, father. And if, if I'm going to jump now, because by the way, I've been with you many times and just to get the history is so fascinating, but to jump to modern times, because your role in the Jewish community uh, often is very much behind the scenes, but very, very critical, especially the interfaith work where you really advocate on behalf of Israel and the Jewish community with the non-Jewish world. 
you've met popes, you've been friends with cardinals, you have, uh, you are uh, looked to by many in the, in the Christian seminary world as an expert, their Jewish expert as well. Is there, what, how did you get into that? How did you get started? I actually got started in a very easy way because I started my career as a Hillel rabbi. And when you sit on a university campus, you have to do, deal with a campus ministry. You have to meet with them on a regular basis. You need their support uh, for certain benefits uh, for the Hillel Foundation and for Jewish students. And then uh, when I came to Chicago, uh, I was invited when Cardinal Bernadine came to town more than 40 years ago, I was invited by the Board of Rabbis because they wanted uh, uh, a young rabbi there to sit in the room with him. And it was actually a very interesting meeting. Uh, this is nearly 40 years ago. At that time, uh, uh, I was the only youngster in the room. All the other rabbis were well on into their 60s and 70s. We welcomed Cardinal Bernadine, and everyone went around and said hello in ironic, warm terms. Um, I did not do that. I said, uh, I welcome to Chicago. I wish you all the success in the world, but it is important uh, for you to know, Your Eminence, that I reject what is most sacred to you and am prepared to die for it. At which point, the older rabbis in the room got all flustered and said to the cardinal, don't listen to him. And Bernadine was a very wise fellow. He said, let the young rabbi continue. I think I know where he's headed. I said, I said, Your Eminence, you too reject what is most sacred to me, and you're prepared to die for it. He said, yes, that's correct. I said, but we both believe that God created all of humanity in God's image, and we should meet together in our common shared civic space to stand for the image of God in which every human being is created. He looked at me and said, that's exactly my idea of interfaith relations. In other words, good interfaith relations is grounded in knowing our differences, not in trying to, uh, not in trying to mask the differences and say we sort of all believe everything like National Brotherhood Week. And in that, in that role that expanded from Cardinal Bernadine to the heads of the other churches? Yes, uh, that's correct. And I never forgot a very great piece of advice that the Rub, Rabbi Soloveitchik of blessed memory uh, gave us. Uh, 1973 was a very difficult year for Christian evangelization on campus. And the late Dr. Norman Frimmer, who was head of Hillel and with close ties to the Hebrew Theological College here in uh, Skokie, we went with a few others to see the Rub. And Rabbi Soloveitchik said to us something astonishing. If you ever meet a Christian who does not believe you need Jesus, do not trust him. Because if he doesn't respect your faith, his faith, he won't respect your faith. And I have found over the years that the more traditional a Christian is, the more orthodox a Christian, all the more likely it is that he or she understands the Jewish people in Judaism and is a supporter and ally of Israel. And in that area of uh, being a supporter of Israel, are 
we hear all different kinds of debates, how challenged we are in the non-Jewish world. Is the Christian world supportive? Are there big challenges that we face? We in the American Jewish community are, are uh, just 1.6% of the American population. We're 15.3 million worldwide, which means we're 0.07% of the 2.2 billion Christian world. We are ma'atmi kolamim. And though Rabbi Soloveitchik has not talked much about this since the mid 60s, he said certain great truths back then, which, are, which inform us to this very day. He said, we are the community of the few. And when we talk with Christians, they are the community of the many. And therefore, we have to be careful that we are not intimidated. And we also have to impress upon the community of the many that we really are a very small minority. And when we look at the Christian world in the United States, we can see three basic groups. The Roman Catholic Church is our best friend in the Christian world. Now, I want to be very careful with the next statement. The, main, the mainline Protestant denominations in their leader, in their national leadership, um, are not our friends uh, they, when it comes to Israel. On the other hand, locally here in Chicago, they are. And then in the evangelical world, we have about 60 million white adult evangelicals, 10% are far left, uh, like the mainline Protestant leadership, 10% uh, believe that we have returned to Eretz Yisrael to herald the second coming sometime later this afternoon. And uh, we, we, we do not see ourselves as actors in a Christian drama. And in the middle are mainstream evangelicals who are very much like modern Orthodox Jews like you and me, people who live and believe in Orthodox faith and want to engage the host culture. And in those groups, in the evangelicals, the 80%, or in the non-Protestant leadership, or in the Catholics, very often by engaging and their support of Jewish causes, or especially the cause of Israel, there's been a lot of criticism because there's a lot of concern in the Jewish community. Are we selling our souls? Are we uh, allowing, just recently, there was a, a controversy in in uh, Florida over an evangelical who was going to be speaking at a pro-Israel rally. Is it appropriate? What has been your experience with these things? Is it appropriate? Is it safe? Is it good? My, my colleagues and I who work in this area, and this includes Orthodox conservative and reform rabbis have a fundamental principle. We will not sit and talk with any Christian who actively evangelizes Jews. Uh, that's number one. Uh, number two, we will not uh, talk uh, with messianics uh, at all. Um, number three, Menachem Begin was a very wise man. Uh, after all, he came from Brisk. Uh, and uh, that's another story, the relationship of the Begin family to the Soloveitchik family. But Menachem Begin met with Jerry Falwell back in the late 1970s. And a reporter uh, asked Menachem Begin, 
How can you meet with him? You know what his theology is. Uh, he believes the, in the second coming and, and what all that means to you, the Jewish people in Israel. And Menachem Begin said, he can have his theology. I'll take his help. Um, <laughs> now, uh, one time uh, when Salim Ridor uh, was ambassador of Israel to the United States, he called me and asked a very difficult question. Uh, he said, you know, there are some very powerful and good and influential Messianic Jews, including someone named Jay Sekulow, uh, a man who appears on CNN. He was one of Trump's attorneys. Sekulow is the anglicized form of Sokolov, which means he comes from an old Chesidisha town. And Jay Sekulow is a Jew converted to Christianity and who is a Messianic Jew. And Salim Ridor called me up and said, we need him for something. Can we work with him? And so I said to Salai, we in the American Jewish community, we define ourselves as a community of faith. We cannot have anything to do with him. On the other hand, the state of Israel has critical needs as a state to achieve with the American government. And I think you should then use him. Uh, so that's a distinction we try to maintain. And it works? It, it works. Uh, it, it does work. But the American Jewish leadership will make no common cause with uh, Messianic Jews. Indeed, to be quite candid, one of the most important uh, evangelical seminaries in the United States, if not the world, is Moody Bible Institute here in Chicago. We will have nothing to do with them uh, because they train people to evangelize Jews. And as my friend, uh, Mark Galley, the immediate past editor of Christianity Today, the Evangelical Leadership Magazine wrote in his closing editorial, we tormented the Jews for 2000 years. Why don't we wait another 2000 before we try to evangelize them? So on this topic, and just to trans move over to another realm of the conversation, you've been writing poetry, and you published the book, What is Lost? And some of, that the, some of that poetry appeared in the Christian century, which seems again, let's go with the list of things which seem unusual. An Orthodox rabbi writing poetry is not unheard of. There were great poets who wrote tfilot, but an Orthodox rabbi writing poetry that appears in Christian publications, I think is a, a something brand new. And, First of all, what prompted you to write poetry? And secondly, how does it work with, together with the Christian institutions and leadership? How did that all come about? Well, you're an educator, Rabbi Matanki, so you know that the era when I went to elementary school and high school, when you had to memorize poetry and write poetry is over. Nobody does that anymore. And my mother, Olea uh, Shalom, loved the poetry of Tanakh. And not only did she learn Tanakh with us, but she taught us to recite the poetry of Tanakh. Uh, for her, Haftarah was one of the most beautiful works of poetry in public literature. In fact, in the Orthodox community, let me just use Rosh Hashanah as an example. Do we do not pay enough attention to the fact, let's say on Rosh Hashanah that Zichronot 
is an is one of the world's greatest works of poetry. Um, uh, tefillah written by Chazal is Jewish belletre. Um, I don't know, and so I started loving poetry because of uh, my mother, and uh, I, I I discovered John Donne in college. Uh, who is a, an amazing poet. And I don't know how I started writing poetry. Um, yeah, I just started writing one day. Now, how did I come to Christian Century? It is the leadership magazine of mainline Protestantism. And about 25 years ago, I wanted to develop a relationship with them because of some concerns about their editorials on Israel. And I became friends with their editor, David Heim. And one day we're sitting together and he introduces me to his poetry editor, Jill Baumgartner. And I said to her, I, I write a little poetry. She said, show it to me. Um, and I did. And so she asked me for more poems. So that's how I ended up publishing there. I'm a child of the 60s. In the 60s and 70s, you're too young, Rabbi Matanki, to remember this, there were many Jewish outlets for Jewish poetry. There aren't any more. Um, and so this funny thing happened. Um, and it's fascinating the kinds of poems that uh, of mine that they published. Some of them uh, raise serious challenges to Christianity. Are, do you have any handy? Is there one you could share? Funny you should ask. How do you like that? Can you hold up the book so people can see it, Rabbi? Does that do it? That does it. And the lights turn back on also. Good. <laughs> yes. So um, I have two poems here. Um, I'll, and I'll read them both, uh, if you don't mind. Um, the title of the first poem is We Remember. Um, their names, we remember their names ever upon our lips, at home on our tongues. Himmler, Heydrich, Hitler, all so familiar. We remember Goering, Gambles, Mengele, and Eichmann. For the rest, see under German, in most any book, newspaper, or magazine. But who knows and remembers? Wasserman of Baranovich, Ziemba of Warsaw, Shapiro of Piazetna, rabbis all, pious to ash. Who knows and remembers Yankel the porter, Sasha the washerwoman, Velvel the wagoneer, Zandel the socialist, Estelke the communist, Poznansky the capitalist, Malka the fruit handler, Shaya the beggar, Hinda the Rebbe's daughter, Shmuel the ragman, Leia the mikveh lady, Mirle the orphan, and the other 231 in the home, unknown, not even forgotten, erased each and every unremembered day. And this was published in Christian Century? Yes. And what was the reaction? And we'll, we'll get to the next one. What was the reaction when that came out? Um, actually, I get, uh, the truth of the matter is, I'm one of the few Jews that subscribes to Christian Century, <laughs> but I get a lot of wonderful reactions. I, I really do. Um, um, the following poem will surprise you that it was published in Christian Century. And in fact, um, it has made its way into a few liturgical settings uh, in Christian churches. The title of the poem is Beginning with the Crucifixion. And we thought, all right, 
He's only one Jew. Let them have their just one Jew. Appetite satisfied with just one Jew. And that'll be it. Just one Jew and we'll be saved. And having had one, just one Jew, appetite grew and grew for one more Jew. Just another one more Jew to save us all. Just one Jew. The skulls grew and grew of just one more Jew. Heaps of skulls, no more Jews. Not ever, just one more Jew. How would that fit into their liturgy? Well, there are many Christians who appreciate that the single greatest challenge today to Christianity um, is the 2,000-year Christian treatment of the Jewish people. Um, it, it, and no Christian group has taken that more seriously than the Roman Catholics and the Lutherans. Um, and uh, they came to realize that not a single prediction they made about us over 2,000 years came true. And most of what they said about us uh, set us on a path to the ovens and the gas chambers. And so as good, honest people, they looked in horror at what was done to us in Christian civilization. The central theme of that poem is really very simple. For 2,000 years until 1963, we were guilty of the greatest crime, deicide, um, the killing of a god. And if you go over to the Chicago Art Institute, you will see there a new trend that began in the late 19th century, Chagall's The White Crucifixion, which portrays a crucified Jew. In other words, we were the ones, so to speak, who have been crucified six million times over. Elie Wiesel was once speaking to a group of Catholic priests and nuns in the 1960s, mind you. This is less than 30 years after the destruction of European Jewry. And someone raised their hand and said, well, how long will you continue to go on talking about the Holocaust? And Elie Wiesel looked at this person, this uh, clergyman and said, you want us to forget the death of 6 million Jews who died, 20, were killed 25 years ago, and you won't let us forget the death of one Jew who died 2,000 years ago. So that since Chagall's The White Crucifixion in Jewish literature and art, there has been a reversal. In other words, we have been the crucified people. Fascinating. And can I, in the last few minutes that we have together, I just want to shift back to your primary role as the rabbinic scholar at Federation. Our Federation is a very special Federation. It's known as one of the strongest and best in the world. And your role is critical because I've sat on committees where you're the voice of the Jewish ethic and the Jewish moral. Working with lay leadership over the last decades, in the, in the Federation world. Have you seen changes, shifts, a different understanding of their role as Jews in the world? Absolutely. And I, I'll respond with a story. Um, 20 years ago, this past year for Parshat Nitzavim, uh, uh, Rabbi Gedalia Schwartz of Blessed Memory was speaking at our Torah for JUF Shabbat. It happened to be five days after the Tuesday of 9-11. And he said, etc. 
And uh, Rabbi Schwartz said, first of all, thank God we're all still standing. And the second thing he said was, all of you are standing here. The Jewish Federation is the one place in the community where all Jews stand together. And that notion uh, is expressive of what Rabbi Soloveitchik said, that while we may differ in our practice, the Brit made it Sinai with the giving of the Torah. We don't differ with the Brit made with Avraham and Sarah, with Abraham and Sarah. We are all their children. And what has happened over the past four decades, as we came out of the generation of the 30s, 40s, and 50s, when Jews sought to become more American, in the wake of the Six-Day War, we've entered a golden age of American Jewry in which Jews who became Americans strive ever more to be Jewish. And that is exemplified by something utterly remarkable. And this is the real test. Unconditional Avat Yisrael, unconditional love of the Jewish people. And that's what you see throughout the lay leadership and the staff of the Jewish Federation. Do we all have a variety of different practices and beliefs, yes. Uh, but what we all share in common is unconditional love of the Jewish people. And that love of the Jewish people translates into not only supporting, but also learning about being Jewish. Is it something, do you still give classes? Do you still orient people the towards- love of the Jewish people invariably leads to greater levels of learning and greater levels of practice. Um, and that, by the way, was always the philosophy of Chabad and Lubavitcher Rebbe's Livracha. In other words, no one is perfect and something is always better than nothing. And all of us are on a path to improvement, including you and me, so that invariably, the greater the love of the Jewish people is developed, the greater the knowledge acquired, the greater the practice. Rabbi Pupko, believe it or not, our time is up. I want to thank you again for that time. Remind everyone, the book is called What is Lost? It is a, a small book, has some beautiful poems in it. Uh, it is a labor of love that Rabbi Pupko has done in addition to his great scholarship in so many different areas. We didn't even get to the medrash that he loves so much and that he reminds me all the time I should use more. But with, uh, with our time up, thank you for your time and for all that you do. Have a Thank very you for day. having me. This was wonderful. My pleasure. Bye-bye.